0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. All right. Welcome to another episode of Talking Ball with Pat Leonard. I am the New York Daily News NFL columnist and Giants beat writer. Have a very special return guest today, former NFL GM and three time Super Bowl winning executive Michael Lombardi. First, need to tell you about Bet Online. Bet Online is your number one source for all your betting needs. Get the latest odds, lines, and matchup reports for baseball, boxing, golf, and more. BetOnline continues to be the fastest and easiest way to place your wagers, including live betting and your favorite casino and card games available to play right from your phone. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today. And get in on the action. Remember to use the promo code BELIEVE for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. And where we start, as I said thrilled to have Michael Lombardi back on the podcast he has a new book it's over my shoulder it's called football done right setting the record straight on the coaches players and history of the NFL three-time Super Bowl winning executive former GM best-selling author of Gridiron Genius co-host of my favorite NFL podcast the GM shuffle and host the Lombardi line on VEASAN and Michael I feel like I have to add football historian to your title after this book as well welcome
1: Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I don't know if I was one before the book, but I certainly loved researching it. I wish I would have done this uh earlier in my career. I probably would have had a better appreciation and a, a better eye to compare players to present and past. What motivated you to write the book?
0: This this type of book?
1: You know, I always felt like there was an injustice going on that it was more of a PR campaign to get into the hall of fame than an actual somebody sat down in the room and said i think i you know i had a lot of conversations with rick goslin from the dallas morning news who's tremendous and he Mm. certainly helped me quite a bit with the book but i would constantly ask him like how is charles haley not a first-time entrance into the hall like what 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 is keeping him and you know when you see when you ask that question like what what more do you have to do to get in the hall if you're charles why wasn't you know sterling why isn't sterling sharp in the hall of fame i mean so i think a little bit of that and then also i kept i did an interview me ernie Acorsi, and uh i forget who else was there but steve sabo conducted it it was up in nfl films and they asked me about unitis and i arrogantly said oh i don't think he could play today not enough foot speed and sabo and ernie just like looked at me like i was an idiot which i was you know and uh and uh, I thought, you know what, you, you better get caught up on this. And I went back and studied the tape and looked at it, and, you know, and, and saw it. And I have a better appreciation for the older play. Like, I don't buy that rhetoric that Dick Buckus couldn't play today. I don't buy it. I, I think he would have been like Makai, and I wrote about it in the book, he would have been like Makai Parsons, move him around. You know, he might not have been a match man to man on a back, but who's going to block him when he was the blitzer?
0: Right. No doubt. My favorite thing about this book, it's a great read. Uh, I read it this week. So, Michael, one of my favorite things about this book, before you get into your Hall of Fame criteria for coaches and players, your top 100 and the history of the television surrounding the game, NFL draft, et cetera, is you lay the foundation of the entire league and the entire sport by talking about what you call the White Oaks. My question for you is, When you talk to people in the league, coaches, GMs, players, do they have an awareness of, let's say, you know, Colonel Blake and the Lonely End, Clark Shaughnessy and the T formation, Paul Brown and his talent procurement system? Do you think people in the league have a full grasp of the history and where, let's say, the play calls and the systems they're working with come from? Or are you educating people in the NFL as much as you're educating people like me and fans?
1: You know, I I don't I I can't speak for everybody, but a lot of people that I know, some of the old the people that I kind of grew up with, they kind of do uh, that were in the league, certainly not on the personnel side, more on the coaching side, but I don't think so. You know, I lived in an environment where, you know, Belichick was very much a historian of the coaches and wanted to understand how things applied. And when I got on the team bus in San Francisco, as I write about, I had to sit behind coach Walsh and he would be doodling Clark Shaughnessy plays. Well, I I didn't really know who Clark Shaughnessy was, but I knew that Bill did and he wanted to look at him. And if he wanted to look at him, I should have looked at him, you know? And so I I was smart enough to figure that out. No, I don't. I, I I don't like, I I say to, you know, I was uh, talking, I was at the university of Michigan and, and Jim Harbaugh's assistant is a man and, and, and I explained to him I said the reason you have this job is the reason you're here is because of George Weiss so he didn't know who that was right hmm. George Weiss was the general manager of the New York Yankees Al Davis modeled the the it, the Raiders after the the New York the New York Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers he grew up in Brooklyn and he wanted to have the power of the Yankees and the speed of the Dodgers and he studied George Weiss the general manager who for i guess this is his claim to fame he after mickey Mantle won the triple crown he got him to take a pay cut you know i don't know if that's <laughs> a good thing or not but he always had male secretaries because he didn't want it, the players to have any con, any relationship with the women and mm. so at the raiders there was always a male secretary there and when bill came to cleveland we had a female secretary i talked to him about this approach And since he was in New England, Bears has been there forever. And Bears does way more than just type letters. I mean, I don't want to minimize what Bears does. He does an incredible job. But the role changed different. And so there's a history behind that role. There's a history behind everybody's role. Right? And so so I tried to present it. I try to present that. And I think if you don't understand the history, like I say this all the time, you know, people run Pete Carroll's cover three. If you don't understand how Pete Carroll developed cover three with Monty Kiffin and Floyd Peters and all those guys in Minnesota, you really don't understand how to attack it. Mm. And so I think you have to look in the back, look at look in the past to see the present. I I mean, that's why I call the Eagles offense a six back offense, because it's really the single wing. Go watch some of those single wing teams, you know, and watch them. Now, it's different. It looks different. But the concepts and the principles are similar.
0: I loved how you pointed out how Bill Walsh didn't like his staff stealing plays from other teams because if they broke down, you had to know the genesis of the play and where it came from and why it was created in the first place in his mind to really understand how to fix it and how to do it correctly. I thought that was really poignant. You do a great job with these guys of telling the details of their stories, but also boiling it down so people can understand the brass tacks, like the fact that Buddy Parker was so ahead of his time With the two minute offense with hand signals on offense. So every time you see a quarterback giving a hand signal to a wide receiver, that's coming from him. Uh, And I love the story of Sid Gilman uh, always telling you how much he loved your dad, quote unquote, uh, Vince Lombardi. That was great. I didn't have the
1: heart to tell him. Uh, I just (laughs) let him keep going with it. Esther was in the background. It was, it was a, it was a, I mean, it was kind of surreal. I'm on the phone with Sid Gilman. I think one of the guys that, that didn't, we put him in a in a in a section, but a man by the name of Francis Schmidt. They call mm. him Fanatical Francis. Right. Uh, you know, wanted he was Ohio State head coach and he wanted to throw the ball at Ohio State. You know, this is before Woody Hayes and that that guy there who ended up going to Washington State. He died early in life, but he was so far ahead of his time that he was an outcast. You know and and I think he really played a huge part in Sid Gilman. I write a little bit about him in the book, but yeah, you could have written a lot more about him because he was so far ahead of his time.
0: you had a quote, I think it was from him it sounded like uh, somebody talking in twenty nineteen about how enough of the run game, the passing game is where yeah. the NFL offenses are now and it all it all clicked for me because when I listen to your podcast, you know, I hear you talk sometimes about. People are acting like this is new. It's not. This has been going on for 70 years or whatever. And so I was reading that that note about Ohio State, him being a passing game advocate, and it's reading his quote. It's like pulled out of whatever, 1930s, 1940s, and it might as well have been in 2023 from, yeah. from, some, uh, from some guy in the Midwest who thought he had an original idea, you know?
1: yeah. I mean, look, you know, what is an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur just takes an original idea and makes it better. I mean, there was a hamburger stand before McDonald's, right? They <laughs> just Ray Kroc saw it as something different, you know, and he decided. That, and that's the same thing in football. You know, it's it's and, and oftentimes, like I write about in the book, the it's mistakes. I mean, you know, how many times do drug companies find a cure for something that they weren't even looking for? You know, I mean, there was an accident that we had eye laser surgery in Russia. There was an accident that occurred and they found that, oh, my gosh. And then, you know, all, a lot of the medicine that we've discovered, Well, same thing in football. You know, they when Bob Trumpy lined up on the wrong side and he went from the left tight end to the right tight end and six guys on defense started moving around, Wallace is like, Maybe we should move the tight end. Maybe they'll cause some problems, you know? <laughs> and so it's a mistake, but it turns out to be part of our, what happens. And that's, what, that's when you get a lot of smart people thinking about things, then yeah. it, it really creates it. So that's what I try to – I want fans to realize that the game – those guys on the sidelines back in the day really deserve a lot of credit for today. You know, if, yeah. if George Hallis Pat, would have said, we're not running the ball. I mean, we're not throwing the ball that's that's bullshit. we're not going to throw the football yeah the the league would have not thrown the ball. He had such a dominant uh but for the good of the game, he wanted to throw the ball, you know, and so that advanced the game you know and and I think there's more to that that you have to understand
0: and even you you noted too, which also connected a lot of dots for me i mean clearly, listen, all these guys are incredibly influential, clearly Paul Brown's influence on the modern n f l yeah. is just It's just everywhere. I mean, it's what the game looks like now. The one thing that stuck out to me among a lot of them was sending in the guards back and forth from the sideline so that it connected the coach from the sideline to the quarterback in the huddle. So it was the control of the play calls because up to that point, as you were noting, the coach was more like a motivator on the sideline who did the pregame and then kind of watched the game unfold. But it sounds like once Brown got there and started doing that, Now that kind of connected, you know, we watched Sean McVay today when, you know, when he was with Jared Goff reading the coverages in his headset, like that's me connecting those dots is what you're doing for fans here.
1: Right. And and, and I don't think we honor the great Paul Brown enough. I really don't. I mean, I know he's in the Hall of Fame, but it, you know, some of this generation doesn't know the reason we have scouting is because of Paul Brown. The reason we run 40 times is because of Paul Brown. The reason we have playbooks (laughs) are because of Paul Brown. The reason it's a professional profession is because of Paul Brown. I mean, the coach of the year award should be the Paul Brownie award. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what it should be. That's what I try to project in the book is like, let's honor these guys. Let's call the combine, the Al Davis combine, you know, because he deserves that, you know, he, he advanced this game and he, no one loved the combine more than he did. You know, like we should attach so we can connect. You know, if you read Owen Eastwood's book belonging, he, he talks a lot about how you connect to the past Really enhances the present. It's a tremendous book and, and I read it this summer this spring and, and it was so it, it to me it reinforced why I thought this book that I was writing was important for people to understand.
0: hmm and, you know, you mentioned the 40 time. you know what I couldn't believe is that you know when Paul Brown is first creating this idea of, he says, as you explain in the book, the 40 yard dash he felt was the best measure of a guy's speed for football because it was the distance they had to cover on a punt coverage, right? On a punt return. Right. And mm-hmm. what I thought was so interesting is all this time has passed since he made that determination. And the, it's like, you know, science, all these things, advancements, and it sounds like he got it dead accurate because if yeah. somebody had said, oh, he was a little bit off on that, it's 50 yards or it's 30 yards, they would have changed it. I just found it so fascinating that you know he determined that, and now here yeah. in 2023, everyone still agrees. it's the 40 yards, it's the 40 yard dash, right? And
1: we have and, and we have all this data on it, and and if we don't study the data, then we're making a mistake. Like what are we doing if we don't study that data? And I think that that's really important. Look, he was so far ahead of his time. So was yeah. Clark Shaughnessy. I mean, people don't realize Clark Shaughnessy was an offensive coordinator in the league. He was a defensive coordinator in the league. We would not have the forward pass if it wasn't for Clark Shaughnessy. But one of the things that I think went really unknown and I tell it in the book is, is when he was the defensive coordinator for, for Papa bear at the bears, Mm -hmm. he, uh, the, the red hickey was running a shotgun offense out at San Francisco in the early sixties. And they were taking the league by storm. well, Clark was the defensive coordinator, and he developed the double-A gap pressure, right, which we see today. Wow. Well, back then, they had no double-A gap pressure. Nobody had – and they, their protection schemes were so limited, there was no way. So the Bears are playing the 49ers, I think, week four of the season, and it's supposed to be a huge game, and both teams are good, and the Bears just blow out the 49ers because they can't they – can't, Frankie Albert can't get the pass off, right, So because he's got all this pressure. <laughs> The shotgun went away that day. It Ugh. went away that day. That was wow. the end of the shotgun until Landry brings it back at the Cowboys where he knew, figured out how to handle the pressures.
0: That's amazing. I, I had to ask – I was going to ask you this later in the interview, but you, you know so much and you see so much and you've studied all of this and you know the game. When you evaluate a player or a play, like when you're watching the All-22 of Giants-Cowboys after week one – Is it easy for you to be paralyzed by all this information? Like when you're watching a play, you must see a thousand things from a thousand different concepts and, uh, you know, something from the 20s, something from the 30s, something from the 40s. Like what is your tape process evaluation like? I I was thinking about that while reading this book.
1: Well, I think, you know, I mean, I I learned this from Coach Ross. The first thing I always do is set what's the front, you know, in my mind. okay, what front are they in? You know, there's only two formations really in football. There's really only two formations. It's either two-by-two or three-by-one. Now, how you get to those two formations could be completely different, right? You might have two receivers to one side, the running back inside, and then the tight end over here. So that's three-by-one. You know, you can move all these pieces around. But at at the end of the day, to to simplify everything, it's two-by-two or three-by-one. You could be three-by-two if you're an empty. But uh, Mm -hmm. I I think to me that's what you have to do. You set the front – You see, you you then figure out what the coverages are, which I think people have a hard time with because most people think it's zone or man when there's really a lot of read coverages that are going on to it. And then you want to evaluate players and plays. Like, you know, what are they trying to do? What's the intent of this play? What are they trying to get to to understand it? You know, why did they do this? You're constantly trying to look at that because you want to take the broad picture of the play, but you also want to take the microcosm of who are they attacking? Who are they going after? You know, yeah. why are they running this? You know, why are they doing that? You know, you know it's people just grade the production. You know, Justin Fields drop back. He throws the ball. Oh, my God, look at that. Well, you know, and then when he only throws the ball, when, when they only have half the routes on one side, you know, some good coordinator is going to figure out, wait a minute, he's only looking at half the field. We're going to cover that. So you're constantly looking for what's the problem? What, what is the concern? And I'm a big, I'm a big believer in pass rush, how you rush the passer is how you stop quarterbacks today. Not, not how you cover. You you got to cover. I get that. But how you keep the quarterback, how you pressure them inside, how you keep the ends tight uh, is to me, what really matters. So I'm always watching that as well.
0: Yeah. Especially now with the, with the rules, you can't touch these receivers. So if a quarterback gets any time at all, uh, most of them at least will be able to complete one downfield. I agree with you uh, turning to some giant centric, uh tidbits and information in this book really if you're a fan of any team this book has something for you i was interested in your criteria for hall of fame coaches and the fact that one of your criteria essentially gets tom coughlin in or would Mm -hmm. get tom coughlin in now he was up i think he was one of six finalists doesn't get in this year i believe buddy parker did uh but or is going to but you say that one of your criteria is two titles. So Super Bowls or NFL championships and a 55% or higher winning percentage, which Coughlin's hovering right around there, like 53%. But Michael, why, why is that one of the criteria? How did you come up with these? How did you figure out, you know, all of these different metrics?
1: I looked at, I looked at what was successful in the league and you know, the past tells you that, right. And how you judge this. And, I think to me, we need a criteria to get a coach in. It's really important. Hmm. Marty Schottenheimer has 200 wins. There's only nine people on planet Earth that has 200 wins, you know, and he can't get in. How is that possible? When you're one of nine on planet Earth, you should get in. But they value, but every case is different. You know, we need to get away from this light item voting, you know, and who can argue the loudest, right? You know, I mean, some guys are better debaters in that room, some guys make a case for a guy. Uh, So I tried to go through the criteria and I also go through the criteria why guys don't get in the Hall of Fame. I mean, George Seifert was a really good coach at San Francisco. But for some reason, everybody says, well, it's San Francisco. Why they won? It wasn't George, you know, but and they get they get supported by his inability to win in Carolina. Well, see, we told you he couldn't win in Carolina. Well, you know every situation is different, and you have to evaluate it. That's what took Hank Stram so long to get into the Hall of Fame, because his New Orleans stint killed his first stint. I, I talk about the second, my second stint's killing my first stint. Yeah. So I just think we need a criteria and stop debating it. You know, it's it's a little bit like grading players. For example, you, you have a player. Let's take a wide receiver, for example. Okay. and you evaluate the wide receiver on a Tuesday afternoon at practice, and you see him making a lot of great catches, right. and you give him a sixth grade, and then I go to the practice the three days later, and I see him dropping a lot of balls, okay? and I give him a four grade. Mm-hmm. We're saying the same thing. You're saying his hands are inconsistent, but he can overcome them. I'm saying his hands are inconsistent, but he can't overcome them. And so we're arguing about what is going to happen overcoming and we frame the argument a lot tighter. That's what has Mm -hmm. to happen in the hall of fame debate. We need to frame it tighter so that we can have a good debate. Why this guy qualifies. Okay. Now you've met the criteria. That doesn't automatically mean you get in, but you've met the criteria. So now let's talk about why you don't want this guy in the hall of fame.
0: Yeah. I really, I think
1: we take the opposite approach. It's, I, I think it's completely wrong. In my background on player procurement, that's not how you find players.
0: Do you think you mentioned in the book, like, you know, this should this should become you would like this to see this become somewhat officialized by the league. Like, let's set up criteria so that we're not just playing this guessing game or who has the better argument. Do you think I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people about this. Do you think that will ever happen or do you think the league and the NFL kind of likes it this in this kind of
1: amorphous
0: uh, subjective way?
1: You know, I, I think they they just they like they like to have this political debate because I think it can be controlled. They can you know, nobody the NFL is the second coming of Lyndon Johnson. Nobody can count votes better than the NFL can when they need something, right? <laughs> so I think they they can do it as well as anybody. I I I would like it to be more of a, a streamline. I would like to have somebody in the room that studied the league, who's been part of the league. You know, I spent time talking to Ron Wolfe for this book and, and uh, you know, I think that's really important, you know, and I, and I think sometimes we don't judge the players correctly and hmm. there should be somebody in the room that has spent a living judging players
0: Definitely, or two absolutely. people in the room. Completely agree. You know, it's interesting when I was reading this because on the one hand, I, I, now I'm not a voter, but I am one of those people who... I I think that people who dominate should be the Hall of Famers, right? So you mentioned the 200 wins for coaches. I absolutely agree with that. Like you said about Schottenheimer, he has more wins than, than 98% of people who have done his job. How is he not in? You know, Dan Reeves. I agree with that. At the same time, I like your argument or your description of your top 100 players. And it's almost like a blueprint for how the Hall of Fame selection for players can work as well. Because let's just t- look at some giants that you have on the list. Mel Hine is at 99 out of 100 in the everlasting category, making this huge mark on the game, also being a great player in his time. Emlyn tunnel at 52 is in the exceptional category, an interception in 47% of his games. I didn't know that stat. Absolutely incredible. And then you have Lawrence Taylor in the elite category at second overall out of the top hundred. We all know why he's elite, but Michael, I really like how you layered those things because a lot of times I look at those and I say, if the player wasn't top three at his position or top five at his position, when he's in the league, he's not a hall of famer. And to an extent, I still somewhat believe that, but I think you make a good case in that list for the fact that different players have high value for different reasons. Is that an accurate way of describing it?
1: Yeah, I do. I I mean, look, I think Dion said it well when he said my gold jacket's different than some other guy's gold jackets. And he's right. I mean, he is right. There's a there's a class in the Hall of Fame that's different, you know. And so what I try to do is explain that. I tried to understand that. Look, I, I don't see, you know, Tommy McDonald, Ray Didinger did a great job of presenting Tommy McDonald. He's got 65 touchdown passes, you know, yeah. as a return guy. I'm not saying he doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame, but there's a wide gap between Tommy McDonald and Randy Moss. I mean, it's a huge gap. I'm not yeah. trying to take away Tommy McDonald's gold jacket, you know, but I'm trying to understand that there's a, diff- there's a set of there, – there's an exclusivity to being in the Hall, and I don't think we've given it that. Like Sterling Sharp not in and Tommy McDonald in – to me is an injustice, you know? And and again, I'm not picking on Tommy McDonald. I I would say the same thing about Andre Reed. I think Andre Reed was a good player. I just never drove to the stadium saying, Oh my God, we're playing Andre Reed today. How the hell are we going to stop him? I think he's really a good player. (laughs) Yeah. And he put numbers up that are, that are really good, but there's a, there's a separation of it, you know? And I think the other thing too, is look, the owners, if they want to put themselves in, they should put themselves in like, that it's their Hall of Fame. Like they shouldn't take away a a spot for – like Robert Kraft belongs in the Hall of Fame, but he shouldn't take a spot away from Mike Holmgren. You know what I mean? Sure. Or, you know, like Buddy Parker belongs in the Hall of Fame, but he shouldn't take a – Buddy Parker shouldn't limit Kraft from being in the Hall of Fame. I mean, to me, the the owners are a separate category. What have they done? They go in. You win six Super Bowls in your ownership. You hire Bill, Bill Belichick when when they when the back page of the New York Daily News – I think it was the Post, right? When mm. the Ian O'Connor wrote this, the biggest mistake of all time, right? You Daily know, News I, back I,
0: in the day, I, I, yeah. yep,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think was it was at the Daily – I'm not sure if it was a Post or a Daily News. You know, when you, when you make that move, you belong in the Hall of Fame. Go. You, I, I don't disagree with that. Don't take somebody else's spot. It's your you – you're part of the league. Like, I don't think Preston Marshall, I think they should throw his ass out of the Hall of Fame.
0: Because
1: mm. he set back, I wrote that, he set back race relation. I mean, from, from the late 20s to 46, he was the main deterrent of breaking the race barrier in the league. We don't talk about that. Kenny Washington suffered a career. Kenny Washington was better than Jackie Robinson in almost everything. Got a standing ovation when he walked off the field at UCLA in his last game at the Coliseum. I mean, it was unbelievable. The poor guy, you know, nobody knows about him. You know, people have written books about him, but nobody really knows how great he was. It's, it's an injustice because he was limited to growing himself, to being there, you know, and, and he had to go play semi-pro. The only reason we have a team in Los Angeles is because Kenny Washington went on the Rams, which became the Rams when they moved from Cleveland, and the city of Los Angeles said, there's no way we're going to let you play – in the Coliseum, if you don't have any minorities, they built that place. We have minorities in our county. You've got to have minorities on your team. That's how it happened, and it still took Marshall till the '60s to before he put a black player on his team.
0: What a comprehensive history you have in this book! As as our viewers and listeners can see, Michael has forgotten more about football than I or most of the people listening to this will ever know. Just fascinating context, Michael. You mentioned when we were just talking about players in their cases you said about Andre Reed which i agree with good player but you never drove to the stadium saying oh my goodness how am i how are we going to stop Andre Reed so i put to you Eli Manning eligible yeah. in 2025 right two time super bowl winner two time super bowl mvp 210 straight starts 366 touchdown passes which is 10th all time at the moment however michael 500 record as a starting quarterback Missed the playoffs in nine of his last 11 seasons, went to the playoffs six times and didn't win a playoff game outside of his two runs. To me, it's one of the most unique and difficult resumes to evaluate when you come to Hall of Fame and the guy's stature versus, okay, let's now look at his resume.
1: Where do you fall on Eli Manning and the Hall of Fame? Well, I think probably with the problem with the Hall of Fame is because a lot of guys have gotten in that don't belong, uh, they're used as leverage to let somebody else who perhaps doesn't belong get in, okay? Mm. You know, Warren Moon never went, He think he went to one conference championship game. He put incredible numbers up. Like, his numbers are incredible. Right. But he didn't really he, that team, that team was tremendous. I write about him in the book that Houston Oilers team was tremendous, probably the greatest team to never win. But, you know, he got in. I mean, Sonny Jurgensen got in and never really won, you know, had had good years. He's in the Hall of Fame. So I, I would say Eli's had Hall of Fame seasons. He's not had a Hall of Fame career. And that's my view. Mm-hmm. I think he's had, I think Tony Baselli had hall of fame talent. He didn't have a hall of fame career. He didn't mm-hmm. play long enough. Yeah. So I think that's the problem. And so when you let players in that have had hall of fame, Cooper cup, you could not have a better season than 2020. You could not have a better season than he had. It's the, it's the aberration season of his career, but that doesn't allow him to go in the hall of fame. It's the right. same argument for him as it would be for Eli. Every other year, Eli was good, not Hall of Fame. So what we're doing is we're taking a Hall of Fame year and making it into a Hall of Fame career. And I don't think that's the case.
0: I agree with you. Actually, I thought the best argument for Eli getting in was when I saw your everlasting category and your top 100 players, I thought that's the best argument for him, right? Because obviously the two Super Bowls, but really the first one, you know beating the patriots knocking off the undefeated patriots and the best one of the best teams ever in football that dynasty of course you know it belo- it, it deserves to be memorialized right it's one of the greatest yeah. moments highlights of all time so to me that's the that's the best case it's very interesting you know there there's 13 quarterbacks who have two or more super bowl wins eight have been eligible to get in um seven are in jim plunkett i believe is the only one who is not he has two super bowl wins one mvp but he threw 198 interceptions to 164 touchdowns 500 record 52 different game though that that interception
1: thing's a different game they played more man they beat up the receivers you can't look at the interception percentage here's what i would say they beat the patriots that that they won 17 to 14 in that first one that they won Mm-hmm. They didn't score 45 points. I mean, it's- it was their, the, the defensive front. The second Super Bowl, I'll make the argument that Steve Weatherford was the MVP of the game. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll make that argument. He was the best. He, he The Patriots starting field position in that game was the 24-yard line the whole entire game. I mean, he nice. backed them up the whole entire – they won that game. With, they won two Super Bowls with the play of their defense. So I'm not taking it away from Eli. Look, I think Eli had a hell of a career. Yeah. He didn't have a Hall of Fame career. Had Hall of Fame seasons. That's different. Now, yep. you live in New York, you got the media in New York, somebody's going to go argue, but I think what we got to stop is we have to stop this, well, this guy's in so he should be in and he's better than him, you know? And, yep. you know, Plunkett, you know, Plunkett got cut, got traded for multiple picks and then got cut by the 49ers and he was a bust. I just think that's that that really stop that hurts the argument.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. Um, yeah, no, I think I think this Eli Manning case is going to be fascinating. It's going to be argued big time. And I totally agree with you about the Super Bowl MVPs. You could easily make an argument. Justin Tuck and Steve Weatherford could you know, win those MVPs. No one would oh, bat yeah. an eye. It makes me think of, too, a few years ago when the Patriots beat the Rams, who nobody could stop and they hold McVay's Rams to three points. And Julian Edelman gets the MVP. I mean, listen, right. he, had a, he had a great game, but like Dante Hightower is the MVP of that game, in my opinion,
1: right? Well, I think um, the defensive staff was. I think, look, yeah, look, look right. that's, the, that's, the, that's the ridiculous argument. You got Asante Samuel coming out there saying Belichick wouldn't have won anything. This is, <laughs> this is the problem we have in the world, right? Asante Samuel says Belichick wouldn't won anything at all if it wasn't for Brady. Okay. You say that. You're entitled to your opinion. I certainly respect that. But let's get some facts straight. The first Super Bowl, Brady threw for 134 yards. They rushed for 133. They stopped the greatest show on turf. He threw for 134 yards in the first Super Bowl. In the last Super Bowl they won together, Edelman was the MVP. They scored 13 points. So, like, don't tell me that he won six Super Bowls because he put 50 points. I I love him. I I love him to death. I've got two rings because of him. I think he's the greatest of all time. But let's put things in perspective. Let's, Let's talk. Facts, let's not talk nonsense. And that's what happens. We have too many people who talk nonsense. And like I write about in the book, we have very few Howard Cosells out there that'll call out people that are talking nonsense.
0: We do. And Michael, that's what makes you to me so valuable in this media space and the NFL space right now is you call it like it is. And what people don't understand is like, as you're saying, you have Tom Brady ranked as high as you could have him ranked in your top 100 players. And then you're also presenting this context on two Super Bowls and what really happened, right? You can make constructively critical comments about football. It doesn't mean you're a hater. It means you're watching the game, right? And so that's what I respect most about you. It's what I respect most about all the books you write. About this book, is you present it in context. It's not personal. It's business, Sonny. And uh, you know, I think (laughs) you exactly. And I think you, uh, I think you see the game as well as anyone. And I like that you call it out. So we're talking a little Patriots. Let's go to a few questions before we get out of here about the modern NFL, because you see the modern game as well as you see the past in the league as well. I got to start in New England. We're just talking about the Patriots. Bailey Zappi getting cut. Michael, this, I think, stunned everybody. I haven't talked to a single person yet who saw this coming. I know he threw some interceptions in the preseason, kind of had a down uh, summer, but This kid played really well when he was in last year. You could make the argument, I think, he was the better quarterback at times, and I think there were plenty of fans who thought so as well last year. Where the heck did this come from, this decision to cut Bailey Zappi, a fourth-round pick, going into his second year? You just don't see teams do this.
1: Well, you got to play good to earn your job. You're a fourth-round pick. I mean, last year's last year. I think one of the biggest misconceptions we make in the media and we make it in the league too – is then is then, now is now. Mm. And so we think a guy, no player stays the same. They either get better or they get worse. And if you really watch the Patriots preseason, which I do, uh, because of my friendship with Belichick, and and I certainly have an affection for the franchise having worked there, he did not play well at all. It would have been hard for Belichick to stand in front of the team and say, Bailey's on the team, he's playing well enough. It really would be. And as a head coach, you got to stand in front of the team and make that statement. Now, if you want to give somebody a job, okay, great. You gave him the job, but everybody knows you gave him the job. He didn't earn it. Now, could he get that back? If he clears the waiver wire, look, his play his play this summer would be shocking for me if he got claimed. Because if you watch tape and you study hmm. the game, he did not play well. He did not right. play well at all. And so it doesn't surprise me. And look, let's face it. If they put Zappy in the game, they're not going to win. So why would they keep him on the roster? Hmm.
0: Well, as we sit here right now, as Michael just said, we're waiting to see on waiver claims across the league. Uh, By the time you listen to this, he may have been claimed or he may not have end up on the Patriots practice squad. Tommy
1: DeVito played better for the Giants than he did.
0: Oh, that kid, man, he's tough. He took a beating and kept getting up. Yeah, no, I like him. He's got some some moxie. Don Bosco prep, Tommy DeVito. (laughs) Um, All right, so you mentioned Tommy DeVito. Let's go to the NFC East. I'm going to ask you one key question about each team, and then we'll get out of here. I know you're a very busy man. All right, let's start with the Kings of the NFC East last year, the Super Bowl representatives from the NFC, the Eagles. Michael, you talk about it all the time. You mentioned it in this podcast earlier, the six-back offense. Is the Eagles six-back offense something defenses will catch up to this season? Or do you think because of their personnel and the way that they – well, they have a different coordinator, but the way that they can call games and use this talent – that it 'll still just be too much for for their opponents
1: well, I think they 've got to stay healthy right but they they 're so talented and they don 't run a, a lot of plays they run they execute their plays really well, so i 'd have a hard time. I think if there 's going to be any vulnerability, it'll be on the defensive front i don 't think the offense look they score two hundred and seven points in the first, in the second quarter, so <laughs> they play from in front, you know, and when they play from in front, they control the pace of the game. I still think They're the class of it. You know, I mean, look, the Giants haven't come close to beating them. I know that one game when Davis Webb played was 21-16. But when you look at the other two games, the the Giants are significantly – haven't closed that gap. And until they close that gap defensively, it's going to be really hard for them to beat them.
0: All right. Washington, you know, there's been uh... (laughs) – Plenty, they can't get out of their own way, man. But yeah,
1: no, they can't.
0: My my flat out question about them is, and not to be harsh at Sam Howe, I know he's a young guy, he's, he's developing. But I mean, Michael, d- does Washington have any real chance to win games if Sam How is their quarterback and he's going up twice against Wink Martindale, twice against Dan Quinn? Like, is this is this really a recipe for Washington to challenge
1: people this year in this division? Well, I mean, they—they they, last year they had t- Taylor Heineke and they, they, they had he they can't play – I mean, Hal cannot play any worse than Carson Wentz played or That's Taylor true. Heineke at times. <laughs> I mean, Hal looked good this summer. I think Hal's got really good rhythm. He's got good timing. Uh, I think Hal's going to be a good player. The problem is, is will they – can they win these close games or they self-destruct themselves? I mean, they've turned the ball over in the red zone last year. Look, they're 8-8-1. They could have beaten the Giants in both games. They lost. They got – they got out coached essentially in both games, especially in the say second that.
0: game. Yep, I especially was just the say
1: second that. game down and down in New York. I mean, Daval and Martindale and, and and Kafka they did a great job. And look, they turned the ball over twice in the red zone, once on downs and once with an interception, a fumble. You know, or else the Giants aren't winning that game. But they made those plays and they won them. They beat the Eagles and they turned the ball over twice against the Eagles on their own field on on the Eagles' field. So. Right. I mean, look, I, I like I, I like Washington. I worry about them being fundamentally sound and attention to detail. Rivera's had three winning seasons in his head coaching career. He's made the playoffs four times. That's what concerns me the most.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I, I think. Yeah, I think they have a next coach, a new coach next season. I was surprised. Honestly, they didn't have a new one this year. I think the ownership situation maybe had something to do with that. But I think you and I are of a like mind. They have some talent, probably have a ceiling, but yeah. Interesting. You're right. Hal had a good preseason. We'll see if he's able to carry it into the regular season. All right. Going to Dallas, Michael will (laughs) Dak wilt under the pressure from Trey Lance. No, I'm just kidding. Um, is CD lamb, uh, Brandon cooks, Michael Gallup, Tony Pollard. Is this, uh, is this the most explosive skill group? I know that Dallas has had good talent at the skill positions, But is this the most exclusive skill group Dak has had um, in several years here? And do you think that comes to fruition, especially with Mike McCarthy calling plays in Dallas, legitimately taking one more step offensively?
1: You know, Dallas hasn't had three winning seasons in a row since the 94 year. Can you imagine that, Pat? Wow. I I mean, it's unbelievable. They have not put three winning seasons together in a row since then. They've had two, but they've never had three. Uh Remarkable. I think they're really talented. They're good on paper, but they're going to win these close games. They can't they can't their offensive line has to stay healthy. I think it will. Steels back, Martin's back. That helps. Yeah. Uh, you know, teron's Taron Smith, I don't know if he'll stay healthy. Tyler Smith's really good as as the left guard. They can kick him out the left tackle. They're good and they're good on defense. And I think their scheme's good. You know, like when they played the Eagles, they got used to the speed of the game and they played Philly better. Now they've had Gardner Minshew in game two. My sense of it is is I, I am not, I'm not of the opinion that they're going to take a step back offensively. I think they'll do a better job of controlling the game. If they play 28 minutes of defense, I think they're going to be really good. Last year, they threw it. They didn't give themselves – they didn't play great situational football.
0: And you think you think that's the primary difference there will be between McCarthy and the joystick who's now in uh, Los Angeles is that he will call the game to what the game, how the game is playing out rather than just
1: picking his favorite play. Essentially, I, 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 you know, people don't understand this. Like, I'm not trying to say you need to run the ball, as you know, right. Reading my book, running doesn't score points. It kicks field goals, but running controls the pace of the game. Yeah. And sometimes you have to control the pace of the game. Sometimes you got to play twenty-eight minutes of defense. Like there are certain teams that if they play thirty-one minutes of defense, they're not going to win. I mean, the Chicago Bears can't play thirty-two minutes of defense this year; they're, they're, they'll get beat. Now, if they play twenty-seven, they might have a good year. And mm-hmm. how do you do that? Well, you convert third downs. How did the Eagles beat? How did the Eagles lose to Washington? They lost to Washington because Washington converted third downs. They kept the ball away from them. They yeah. controlled it time of possession is is kind of a misleading stat because it's what you do with the ball when you possess it that matters most.
0: No doubt, no doubt. All right, leaving the the juiciest for last, the Giants. Okay, so exciting camp, of course. They have guys like Darren Waller, Bobby Okereke, Paris Campbell. A lot of excitement. Saquon Barkley showed up and signed at the start of camp, even though the deal obviously uh, doesn't look very good compared to what he was hoping to get. But Michael, my question to you is I've been at camp every day out there in East Rutherford and I see deficiencies at the offensive line, particularly at the guard positions. And obviously there's still questions about Evan Neal, right tackle. And then in the secondary where there's some encouraging youth, but who knows how two rookie corners on the outside fair, plus you don't have any depth. My question to yeah. you as a, as a lifelong evaluator who has been around this game is can a promising team with a good coaching staff overcome shortcomings in those areas, offensive line and secondary, that are so key to success in the league?
1: I think what they did really well last year is they knew who they were. They played a certain style, and they, they had to play that style to win. They had to get the game to the fourth quarter close and find ways to win or lose. The second half of the season, people kind of got a sense of what they were doing and it became more difficult, the Detroit game. I mean, the Houston game could have easily been a loss. They turned yes. uh, Houston just kept giving them a game. But I, I, I think that's the case, and I don't think they can play a different way. I think Daniel Jones plays best when he's in a six-back offense than if they're going to try to come out and throw it like he's Pat Mahomes. That's not going to work. I think he needs to run. He was the second-leading rusher on their team. I think they could have a better team, maybe not a better record. I think that the the schedule's going to be more difficult. Plus yeah. I think people understand how they want to play. You know, how they want to attack you and how they want to handle it. So, look, a lot of this is going to come down to health. They got to stay healthy, especially Daniel Jones. I mean, he's going to have to if they're running him like they have to, he's got to stay healthy. And that's always hard. Same thing with Jalen Hurts. You got to you going to run this six back offense, you got to stay healthy. So, look, I I think to me They did a remarkable job of closing the gap down. And now this year they've added more talent, so they've kind of come there. But I think every time you're a good team, you don't go from good to great. You go from good to a little bit good, you move up a class. And with the schedule being tough, I think it's going to be hard for them.
0: I think that's a fantastic insight into Daniel Jones and the offense, too, because watching camp every day, I see – Yes, we want to push the ball downfield, but with the offensive line, with the roster, with the personnel, and like you said, figuring out what worked for them and for their quarterback last year, Michael, I think Daniel Jones ends up running more this year. Even their passing plays include basically 85% of the time movement and action with the quarterback and an encouragement with him to run. He's added a little bit more muscle. I think what you said is right on the the nail on the head is he just has to stay healthy because he's going to be taking some hits. I mean, he's really going to be running a lot. I think this offense is going to run through Darren Waller in the passing game and Daniel Jones, frankly, in the running game as much as Saquon Barkley. He may challenge your guy Justin Fields in, uh, in Chicago and Jalen Hurts for the, uh, for the NFL title in Russia. It, it, wouldn't,
1: it wouldn't be the worst thing. He's athletic. He's kind of deceivingly athletic, but I think that's got to be. And look, let's be honest here. The Giants can't play from behind. That's not going to be their strength. They're not going to be, they've got to play from in front. That's when they play their best.
0: No doubt. Michael, this has been amazing. Remember, we are sponsored here by Bet Online. You can find us. Please subscribe, rate review on YouTube at PL on NFL, or wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Spotify. We are also sponsored by Estate 98 Coffee. It's an esencia de Cafe from El Salvador. Pour it in a glass with some ice, stir it, takes three seconds to make. I do it every time I do a podcast, but Michael, this was a thrill, a joy. The book, everybody Thanks, remember Pat. football done, right. Setting the record straight on the coaches, players, and history of the NFL running press September 5th. It's over my shoulder. Go get it now. Thanks so much again, Thank Michael. Pat. Always a pleasure.
1: Thanks Pat. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to believe.